There is no other name, no one greater. It's appealing to imagine a God who likes what we like and who approves what we approve and who leaves us alone and we want to be left alone. Hey, a God who's kind of like a bigger, better version of us. It's easy to be comforted by the thought of such a God until we run up against a life situation in which we realize, man, if he's like me, he's kind of a puny God. Like that sort of God isn't able to help me with anything really serious when it really comes down to it because some problems are big enough that I need more than just affirmation and agreement. I need a God who can correct my course. I need a God with wisdom beyond what I'm able to see. I need a God who's not stuck in my same mess so that he can rescue me from it. Unfortunately, as we've seen over the past few months, the Bible tells us about a God who can rescue us precisely because he's decidedly not like us. Remember the verse we began this series with, Psalm 50, 21? I think we've got it up here. You have done these things and I kept silent. You thought I was just like you. God calls us out here for what we're all prone to do, to imagine that he's just like us. But over the past 20 plus weeks, what have we found out? We found out that he won't sit still under our microscope. He won't be contained in our categories. This is a God whose radiant purity makes every single one of us uncomfortable in some way or another. And as such, isn't the God that any of us would have drawn up. Yet precisely because he stands over us, unaccountable to us, he can be the God we were made for but never knew we needed. So today's final sermon in this series will serve two purposes. We are going to cover one final attribute of God, namely his simplicity. But because divine simplicity is in some ways a summary attribute, it'll provide us an opportunity to reflect back on the past 20 plus weeks and drive home a takeaway based on everything we've seen about God this semester. So we're glad you're here with us, young and old. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Ve'ahavta, Adonai Eloheka, B'kol Levavka, Uvakol Nashika, Uvakol Meodeka. Those are the first words each of my sons heard in this world upon completing their exit through the birth canal. They're words given to Moses in Deuteronomy 6 and recited regularly by the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, generation after generation to this day. And as such, these words were almost certainly recited by Jesus himself probably multiple times every day. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Ve'ahavta, Adonai Eloheka, B'kol Levavka, Uvakol Nashika, Uvakol Meodecha. What's it mean? Listen, Israel. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. There may not be words that are more foundational to our faith. And incidentally, there may not be words more foundational to the faith of our practicing Jewish friends and neighbors either. So let's jump right into it here this morning. Part one, the Lord is one. Let's break it down. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's one. What else would he be? 
Well, many of Israel's neighbors over the centuries have believed in a multitude of gods, right? Say that one you appeal to for rain, another you appeal to for military success, another you appeal to for physical healing, etc. So to say in that context that the Lord is one is, in part, to say, nah, there's only one God. In other words, we wouldn't be wrong to translate this as some have, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. But there's another layer to this that's particularly relevant for our purposes this morning. Without these words, we might be tempted to imagine the Lord as a, as a multiplicity of gods, yes, but we also might be tempted to imagine him as a multiplicity of parts. As though, if you take this quality and that quality and this characteristic and that attribute and this property and you put them all together, then you get God. But no, he's, he's one. For reasons we'll unpack in more in a few minutes, the Lord is one doesn't just rule out the Lord being a multiplicity of gods. It also rules out his being a multiplicity of parts. And so I hope that nobody has started going down that road over the course of these past 20 weeks. It would be a miss to listen to all these sermons about God's attributes and then start to think of God as though he's what you get when you take a spoonful of patience and mix it with a measure of power and sprinkle all that with justice and throw in a dollop of love. Put it all together and you've got the greatest being imaginable, right? The one we call God, no. If that's the way it was, there would be a lot of internal conflict in that mixing bowl, right? For example, perfect justice and perfect mercy. Sure, they might be able to coexist in there for a time, but like oil and water, justice and mercy have got to separate out eventually, don't they? It sure seems like it's only possible to practice one or the other in a given situation. Either you exercise justice or you extend mercy, true? Same with transcendence and imminence. Same with holiness and love. A God made up of all these apparently conflicting parts must certainly be engaged in a constant internal battle. It's like our internal turmoil, only raised to the nth degree. We call it a battle, you and I do, when we want fast food yet want to be healthy. Imagine if perfect mercy and perfect justice were at war within us, right? Poor God. Yet. God doesn't seem to be actually experiencing any kind of internal battle. It seems that some of what we imagine as either-ors, he sees as both-ands. So let's talk about that. We're going to have an open mic time after this sermon, by the way, just a brief one, in which you'll have a chance to share any takeaways from this series as a whole, looking back on any of God's attributes we've looked at over the past 20 weeks. One of several things I'd be curious to know, and I've asked several of you, uh, several of you this already, has the question of, of contradiction been a live question for anybody in this series, right? In other words, has it bothered you at any point over the last 20 plus weeks that the Bible can so often claim two things about God that on the surface appear to contradict each other? The Bible seems amazingly comfortable with that phenomenon. So comfortable that many times it's in the very same passage that apparently contradictory things about God are claimed, attributes attributed to him in back-to-back verses that surely seem like they must be at war with each other if they're attempting to coexist within him, right? For example, here's another foundational text of our faith, both Judaism and Christianity. This is 
God's self-revelation to Moses in Exodus 34. We preached other verses in this chapter earlier this semester. Here we meet a God who has called Moses out of obscurity to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses wants to know, who is this God? Look at how he describes himself to Moses. The Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Does a problem present itself here to anyone else? How can God be all these things listed in these two verses? How can the God who will later claim, I am one, the Lord is one, simultaneously claim that he forgives iniquity, rebellion, and sin, and claim that he will not leave the guilty unpunished? Either you punish the guilty or you don't, right? Either they get what they deserve or you forgive them. It's an either or, God, justice or forgiveness. Which is it going to be? But God's like, no. This one's a both and. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. This Exodus 34 text is one of the primary passages that I'm always eager to discuss with my Jewish friends. I love exploring possible solutions to the problem raised here. Like, hey, hey, this is a foundational text for both of us. Jew and Christian, right? So what do you do with this? Right? How can God be this and that? How can he forgive yet punish? I'm always curious about how people wrestle with this. And I'm also interested to hear, what are you expecting for your own destiny? Right? That he will forgive your iniquity, rebellion, and sin? Is that what you're expecting from God when your time has come? Or that he won't leave you unpunished? Which one is going to come true for you? So, you see the problem, right? So, so the Lord is one, he claims. But this necessitates a both-and dynamic in some places. Do you see the question that God has introduced and seemingly invites from the beginning of the Bible story? He's basically like, hey, here's who I am. I'm holy, but I'm also love. I'm far above you, but I'm also right here with you. I forgive sin, but you're crazy if you think I'm going to let the guilty go unpunished. In summary, I am one. And we keep asking, how? Theologians have spoken of this as God's unity or simplicity. Simplicity. And we're talking about God as simple. We don't mean like the opposite of sophisticated. We mean like the opposite of complex. In other words... We're making use here of the old definition of simple. It means not composed of parts. Something simple is not composed of parts. So while over 20 plus weeks now, we've identified this passage over here that identifies and highlights this attribute of God. And then another passage over here that highlights another attribute of God. And then another. Although we've seen different attributes of God emphasized at different times, what simplicity claims is that God himself is not divisible into parts. 
To put it differently, starting with that foundational claim of Deuteronomy 6, the Lord is one, and then working out from there to build their case from the rest of Scripture, theologians have pointed out that the attributes that we've looked at over these past 20 weeks, these aren't properly thought of as parts of God. They're not parts of God, which might put them in competition with each other. God isn't this internally conflicted being who has to set aside less important parts of who he is to prioritize the more important parts as if his attributes are somehow ranked in significance and the highest ranked attribute wins out when two attributes come into conflict? No, no. God is perfectly comfortable possessing and affirming these attributes side by side. Sometimes in the same sentence as we saw in Exodus 34, right? which means that in his mind, his attributes may create paradox, but not contradiction. Because he knows he's not a being made of parts. He's one. He doesn't have attributes. He is his attributes. But maybe we'd ask then, okay, God, but if you're not made of parts, then why have you described yourself in Scripture in such a way that lends itself to our thinking of you as having parts, your loving part, your justice part, your merciful part, etc.? Why does one passage emphasize your beauty while another emphasizes your goodness while another emphasizes your sovereignty if you meant all along, really, for us to think of you as a unity, not made up of all those characteristics? Why, God? Analogy time. Ready? Not my analogy, but I think it's pretty good. What if it's like when one beam of light comes shining through the stained glass and we can see it in different colors, right? Or, or a prism is another one, right? right? Or it refracts off a prism. Then... We see properties of the light that were always there, but that we hadn't known were there until they separated out into colors for us to observe. Right? It's not a perfect analogy, but maybe there are some similarities with God. He stoops down to us to describe himself in ways that we can understand, like light refracted through glass. And we can see those individual colors and comprehend them to some degree. And so as we look at those attributes of his one by one, as they're shown through the glass, it makes it easier for us, finite creatures, to gain a deeper understanding of God, even if we never gain total understanding of that one light that is him. Right? Besides, think about it. God, God, he can't be a collection of parts. If he were a collection of all his attributes added together, then he would be subsequent to and dependent on those attributes. This is an observation by Thomas Aquinas, right? If he, if he were composed of the sum of his attributes, they would have had to predate him, right? And he would need their prior existence in order for himself to come into existence. He'd be externally constrained, right? Like, phew, I need to make sure I meet love's expectations for me today. I'm supposed to be a loving God after all. No. As we saw a few weeks back, he has life in himself. He answers to no standard outside himself. And he depends on nothing outside himself to keep himself going. Right? And that ought to stop us then from thinking of God like, like when you choose your fighter in a video game. When you choose your character that you're going to play with. Like, check it out. This fighter has 96 strength, 87 awareness, 89 balance. They're attributes, Right? There's a danger we'll start thinking of God that way. Like, ooh, he's got 99 holiness, 92 wisdom, 95 sovereignty. Like, no. Whatever he is, he is in full. And it's for that same reason that we must not and we have not spoken of one attribute as if it's the overmastering attribute above all the others. 
right? Some have said, hey, look at the text here. It says holy, holy, holy three times, right? Same word three times as holiness then must be what's most important about him. Or even more frequently, it says, oh, look here, it says God is love. If God is love, then whatever else God might be to some degree, love wins over everything else. No, right? That's taking one part of the wavelength spectrum, one color that's refracted through the prism, and speaking as though it's the whole or more important than all the others. God is one in reality. That means that his holiness is a loving holiness. His love is a holy love. His justice is a merciful justice, and his mercy is a just mercy. See? God never has to choose between attributes, in other words, rightly understood. Never has to set any of them aside, even for a moment. But that's a key caveat, of course, rightly understood, right? Because, for example, if we misunderstood his love in such a way that we imagine it to be just unbridled empathy, then that love would come into conflict with his holiness, and he would have to set love aside to maintain the distinction between creature and creator. Or if we misunderstood his mercy to mean that he's happy to look the other way when people sin, then that sort of mercy would come into conflict with his justice, and he would have to set mercy aside to punish sin. Right? That's why we worked so hard over the course of this series to rightly understand his attributes over these four months, because in fact, all of his attributes qualify all of his other attributes. So the final question is just, but how? We still haven't answered it. <laughs> we keep talking about the fact that the scripture affirms that these two are held both and. He's simple, that the different attributes of his aren't in conflict with one another, but how? So far, it's been theoretical this morning, right? Philosophical, and I imagine some here love that. We've got some visiting philosophers from out of town. Uh, others are like, come on, we don't need all this theory. But the Bible doesn't leave this in the realm of the theoretical. In response to our question, but how, God? How can you be all these attributes simultaneously when so many of them seem to contradict each other? He answers not with a set of abstract propositions explaining how it works. He answers instead with a narrative, with an action, with a storyline. And ultimately that storyline culminates at the cross. Can I walk us through that storyline real quick? It starts, in the beginning, God. And the God who's there at that time creates order and beauty and assigns everything a place. But before too long, the first humans decide they don't like God's order and God's instructions. They want a shot at being the decision makers themselves. And this rebellion raises the question, well, what is God going to do with this problem of sin? That's where we see the passages we saw earlier today, Exodus 34, where God says in one breath that he'll forgive sin, yet in the next breath that he won't leave the guilty unpunished. How? And then Deuteronomy 6, right? The Lord is one. But how if he's got all these attributes in him? If he forgives, won't his mercy have won out over justice, thereby negating his justice and his simplicity? Generation after generation lives and dies reading these passages and asking the same question, how these things can be until God ultimately answers the question. And he answers it in the most stunning of ways. He answers it by taking on flesh, by subjecting himself to betrayal and rejection, and then by submitting himself to a penal death outside the city 
on a cross, under a curse, all in the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, in response to faithful Jewish folks who for centuries were asking, God, how are you going to forgive sin while not clearing the guilty? He says, here's how I'm going to do it. And he puts on skin and flesh and bones and marches himself to the hill of crucifixion. See, at the cross, the guilty aren't merely cleared. God doesn't just look the other way. No, all our sin is punished to the fullest extent of what God's perfect justice requires. It's just that because our guilt has been transferred to himself in the person of Christ, it's him experiencing the punishment for us. And as such, he's shown to have been truthful when he said, I won't clear the guilty. Because he doesn't clear Jesus, our guilt bearer, he punishes him. And is shown to be truthful when he said, I'm a God who forgives sin. Because he doesn't punish us sinners, he forgives us. The cross then is where all of God's attributes meet in their ultimate beauty. We see his knowability here. As he refuses to remain in heaven, safely aloof from our plight, instead subjecting himself to pain in order to be accessible to us again. Yet we see his incomprehensibility here and the great deal of mystery that still remains about what exactly was happening on that cross. Like how do God the Father and God the Son remain united even as the Father pours out the wrath on his Son? We see holiness here in his refusal to tolerate sin or to allow it to remain in his presence. We see his goodness here and his exercising of his mighty power, not to teach us a lesson, but to act sacrificially on our behalf. We see his righteousness and justice here, in that every sin ever committed gets punished to the fullest extent of what we deserve. None are swept under a rug. Yet we see his mercy and grace here, in taking the punishment himself, such that you and I are completely spared without ever having to bear even a fraction of the wrath we deserve. We see his patience here, don't we? in his following through with the crucifixion, despite the fact that you and I continue to spit in his face? We see his omniscience here because it required his knowledge of all of our sins, past, present, and future, in order for him to assign all those sins to Jesus at the cross. We see his omnipresence here and that the same Lord who upholds the universe with the word of his power at every moment is somehow suffering in a particular place and time under God's curse. We see his eternality and infinitude here and that Christ is slain from the foundation of the world, according to Scripture, fulfilling a plan that God had set in motion before time even began. We see his sovereignty here in how he works even through sinful rulers like Pilate and Herod who are not intending at all to cooperate with his plan, yet, nevertheless, they are used by God to accomplish his ultimate purposes. We see his omnipotence here. And that not even death is powerful enough to stop him. Not even the grave is powerful enough to hold him. We see his immutability here and that none of the events of the centuries leading up to the cross or the centuries since have changed God's mind about his plans and purposes for us humans. He continues to relate to us just as he almost promised he would. We see his transcendence here. When the sky goes dark that day and the curtain gets split in two and bones jump out of their graves. While we see his imminence here in the sounds of Christ's cries and the smell of his blood. We see his love here in his free choice to set his affection on his own, washing us clean to be his spotless bride. We see his jealousy here 
in the lengths at which he's willing to go to snatch us out of the trance of the other gods we so often worship. We see his beauty here as we're captivated by a love story no one else could ever conceive of, much less would ever enact for us. We see his faithfulness here as he makes good on all the promises he made over the years, all the promises that just seemed like empty words until he followed through and vindicated himself here. We see his self-existence, his self-sufficiency here in the complete absence of being motivated by anything he needs from us at all. He goes through with it simply for his own glory and delight. We see his wisdom here and how he causes every loose end, loose thread of the story to tie together all at once, even the parts that we couldn't understand. And as such, we see his unity or his simplicity here as all his attributes are on blazing display. So our big idea today is this. Meant to scroll through those as I did that. Instead of reducing God to our favorite attributes of his, let's joyfully submit to all of who he is. Instead of reducing God to just our favorites, our favorite parts of his character, let's joyfully submit to all of who he is because he's one. And let's face it, we all have favorite attributes of God. As individuals, we do. Entire cultures seem to have favorite attributes of God, meaning that what's offensive about God in one part of the world is what's most appreciated about God in another part of the world, right? For example, there are people who have prized education and as such love the wisdom of God that they find in Scripture, but then are offended by claims to his holiness. There have been highly moral cultures who have loved the justice of God that they find in Scripture, but have been offended by his lavish mercy that seems so unfair. There are freedom-loving cultures that have embraced the love of God that they find in Scripture. That feels nice. But have been offended by his claims to sovereignty. See, we might think that the Bible's teachings on certain hot topic cultural issues are controversial today. But in another part of the world right now, those are the easiest, the least countercultural parts of the Bible to swallow. Same ones, right? Instead, in that other culture, they find offensive the Bible's teachings on family or possessions. In the end, the God who is there offends all of our sensibilities, eventually, because we're all sinful. And so when we encounter a perfect God, he inevitably rubs up against our imperfections. He refuses to leave us untouched. And that means that many of us have been asking the wrong question for years. We've been asking, do I like what the Bible teaches? Do I like what God says? Does this book fall in line with what I think about the world? And really what we should be asking is, how do I fall in line with the God who is there? Think about it this way, right? If there really is a God who is all of these attributes, if you can go to the next one, uh, yeah. If there's a God who's all of these attributes, does anything else really matter? Nothing comes close to mattering as much as that sort of a God matters. And so he deserves, if that's who he is, he deserves to be the center of our lives, the primary and all-consuming focus. But on the flip side, if such a God doesn't exist, well then again, does anything else really matter? At that point, it's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, isn't it? Because if God isn't all that big, or if he isn't all that good, or if he isn't all that powerful, all that merciful, we're doomed. Might as well enjoy the few fleeting moments of existence we have left, because help is not coming. And our lives then are meaningless. See, there's no more important question that you will ever ask in your life 
than the question of who is God. If we had to choose to spend an hour reflecting on who God is or spend an hour scheming how to maximize our retirement portfolio, the former shockingly turns out to be a much more practical use of our time. And on the practical end, I guess the main takeaway that I kept coming back to in this series is, wow, if this is who God is, this really cramps my autonomy. But I love my autonomy so much. We value so highly the right to believe uh, that we can call our own shots, right? To define our own identities, to serve as captains of our own ships. And if the God who is there was just kind of like another version of ourselves, then we'd be justified in claiming that right and calling our own shots. But if the God who is there is jealous and beautiful and omniscient, omnipresent and sovereign, then I don't have any right to claim autonomy. I'm not even my own anymore. I belong to him. He's my master. He's the only one with the right to call the shots. I think of it this way. When when I see a kid build something with Play-Doh and then watch another kid walk over and smash it, that's treated as a serious violation in our home. But what if the kid who built the Play-Doh tower smashes it himself? Do we impose consequences? Of course not, right? It was his to do what he wanted with it. It's the same with God, right? If he really made us, and if he's really the standard of what is good and holy and beautiful and faithful and what is true, and if he put all those attributes on display by subjecting himself to death for us, then who are we to tell him what to do with his Plato? We owe our very existence and our every breath to him. All there is then to do is, is to decide, am I going to submit to this God? Or am I going to spend my life shaking my fist at him? And where do I hope my fist shaking is going to get me? I can't take on this kind of God as my advisor or my consultant. He demands my complete submission as my Lord. And I don't know, maybe you just feel like you can't get there right now. Maybe for you at this particular moment in your life, it's, I can't imagine submitting to God. I just find some of what he says too offensive. And I get that. I really do. But if there was a God who never offended us, wouldn't that be a sure sign that we weren't thinking of the real transcendent God? The only God who never offends us is the God that we create in our own image to be just like us. God has offended everybody from every culture. What do we expect from him, right? The, The test then isn't how we respond to him when he's displaying those of his attributes that we like. That's self congratulation. The test is how we respond to him when he's displaying his attributes we don't like. What then? Are we willing to follow him just because he's God? Are we willing to submit to him because he's proved his love by dying for us? Hasn't he done enough to earn our trust? That his ways are better and more beautiful and more moral than our ways? On the sticking points in which we find him offensive, that's the test of whether we really put our trust in God. What he calls us to at the end of this series, I think is to lay down our claims to autonomy, to say, here I am, God, I'm yours. Take the pen, write my story, do what you want with me, to joyfully submit, not just when we like what he's doing, but all the time and to all that he is. Let's pray. Lord, you are big and you do love us, and that does make us so glad at the end of this series. 
We thank you that as we give our lives to you, we can trust that your ways are better than ours, that you know better than we do what makes for a good life. And so we can put the pen in your hands knowing that you'll write a story far better than any that we could write for ourselves. Help us to do just that, joyfully, with gladness. In Jesus' name, amen.